Exodus 3.13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Father, we thank you today for another opportunity to open your word and to hear you speak from it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come now and speak the message that you would have us to learn from this section of Scripture. That even as you give this revelation of yourself to Moses in this context, we know that by extension you Give the same message of hope, the same revelation of yourself to us now. And I pray that as we look into it and we, we see more of who you are, that our, our faith would be strengthened. That our hope in you would, would be strengthened. That we would be able to fulfill the calling to which you've called us. Because we understand more accurately the God who has called us to that task. And so we pray that you would accomplish this for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by asking us a question to kind of think back to different circumstances in our life. And I wonder if you've ever had this experience of feeling like an outsider. You're coming 
into a group that you perceive that you don't belong to. You know, maybe it's apropos that school is starting this week and, and maybe for some here, and I think for many of us who have been through school, that you, you remember the time when you moved up from elementary school into middle school and now you're, you're the one that, that doesn't belong per se or you moved from middle school into high school and you're the outsider now. You used to be the big man on campus. Now you're the outsider. You're the young one. Maybe for you adults, it, it's that first day at that new job. You know, you're excited to start this new job, but all of a sudden you're, you're the outsider. You're the, the brand new one. You don't understand the culture into which you're going. You're worried that you're not going to do something the right way and everybody will think, yeah, this guy doesn't belong. Have you ever had those experiences, those thoughts? Maybe it's joining a new church. Everybody else knows each other and none of them know me. I don't fit. I don't belong. And I think any time that we're preparing to join a new group like that, we're, we're coming into a, a new experience. We want to have a certain point of commonality with those people that we're getting ready to go meet. We hope that there's something that, that we can identify that will help them see how cool we are. Yeah, we're a likable person. They, they can like us. They can accept us. I think maybe humorous, a humorous example of this is to, the lengths to which political candidates will go from time to time to, to show that they, they have what it takes to represent a certain political party. And they'll, they'll go to great lengths to prove that they belong in that party, to earn certain votes. I think even to some extent, this is what Moses has in his mind. As he, as we just saw in the first half of chapter 3 of Exodus, God is calling him to this task. And here you can almost imagine what, what's going through Moses' mind. Think about Moses for a second. He was certainly an unlikely candidate for this task to which God had called him to. This was a guy that, yes, he was a Hebrew but he had been raised in his childhood in the house of an Egyptian. He was raised in the house of Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised as an Egyptian. And then you remember, in an attempt to try to stand up for his native people, he murdered an Egyptian, thinking that he was going to gain favor with the Hebrews. But in fact, they confronted him on that. They essentially rejected his attempts at deliverance. And he was forced to flee and he had now been living in exile from his people for the last 40 years in Midian. So I think it's safe to say that to some extent Moses himself feels like an outsider. God is calling him to go back to his people and be the, the human means of deliverance for them. And to some extent Moses feels like, God, I'm going to go back there. And they're not going to accept me. They're not going to accept me as their deliverer. They're going to reject me. I'm now 80 years old. I've been away from them for 40 years. God, what is it you're calling me to do? And I think more than being a, a lack of faith here or an, an objection along the lines that I think we'll see a little bit later in chapter 4, Moses objecting to God directly 
about how he is insufficient for this task. I think more than more than an objection objection along those lines, this is Moses seeking some measure of credibility. He's he is perceiving. And don't we do this sometimes? We we build up this scenario in our minds of what this person is going to say to me and so I need to figure out what I'm going to say to them so they accept what I'm saying. And I can imagine those things going through Moses' mind as he anticipates what the children of Israel might say to him as he comes to them seeking to be their deliverer, claiming to have this message from God. And what God does here in his grace to Moses and and by extension his grace to us is to reveal himself. And he reveals himself specifically to be the eternal, self-existent, unchanging, covenantal Yahweh who will demonstrate his covenant faithfulness to his people and his sovereign rule over all peoples by visiting his people to deliver them from the bondage of their enemy and enrich them with the treasures of Egypt. And I say this is a a gracious act of God because it, it goes a long way toward enabling Moses to, to pursue and fulfill the task that God has called him to. And the message that he takes to his people will, will lead them to believe what he has to say, to follow the Lord in obedience And ultimately, we know, to be rescued from their bondage. So the first point that I want us to see from this section is the fact that God reveals his name to Moses. This was Moses' big question. Verse 13. It says, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, Moses anticipates that they're going to ask him, What is this God's name? What is his name? And Moses' question is, what do I tell them? What do I tell them your name is? And I think it's important for us to consider a couple questions as we see what this name is that God reveals to him. First, is this name that he reveals to them a brand new name? Is this, is this some new aspect of God's character? Because you, you understand, especially in the Bible, names had great significance. What somebody named their children took on great significance. Often it, 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 it sprung out of what was happening in their lives at the time. The circumstances of that child's birth determined their name. Even we saw the name Moses when he was given his name. It was tied directly to what was happening, the circumstances around his birth. And so Moses is asking for this name, and is God going to reveal some new characteristic about himself through his name for the people to hold on to. Another question, what does is, what is God refer to at the end of verse 15 that when he says, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations? What, is, what name is it that he is referring to here? Well, in order to, to answer this question, I think we have to understand what Moses wants. I think, as I've I've already said, Moses is seeking credibility among the people. Moses wants to know that when he goes before his people with this message, that they are going to believe what he says. And I think if we look ahead to the end of chapter 4, when he does in fact finally go to Egypt, 
there is a simple, straightforward statement that essentially Moses and Aaron go and they speak all the things God told them to speak and the people believed. Not much there is made of, of this name. So I think that to me is an indication that this is not a, a brand new name, but that they, in fact, accepted what Moses had to say. They received him as being the messenger from God to them. So it seems to be that the purpose of God's revelation of his name here is not to show them something brand new, but it's actually to strengthen their faith in the one that they already knew, to strengthen their faith and strengthen the faith of the the one sent to be their deliverer. And then as Moses understood who it was that, that God is to them, he would take that message to the people and they would believe. So God's initial answer to Moses, he says there in verse 14, when, when Moses asks, what shall I say to the people when they ask, what is your name? God's first, his initial answer is simply, I am who I am. Some have said that this is kind of a, a, an answer that dismisses Moses' question. This, it's almost as if God is not even dignifying Moses' question. Almost brushing it aside by saying, I am who I am. But I don't think that's the case at all. I think that this is God revealing to Moses exactly who he is. This is, this is who, who he has always been. I am who I am. This is, this is a statement that highlights for us several important characteristics about God's character. First, it, it shows us that God is self-existent. God's statement that he is who he is shows that he is a self-existent being. You know, it boggles our finite minds, but the fact that God is self-existent refers to the fact that he was not created. God is an uncreated being. He has always existed. And everything else that exists, exists because he created it. God himself is self-existent. Existent. He exists within himself. The psalmist wrote about this in Psalm 90, verse 2. He said, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so God wants Moses to understand. God wants Moses to tell his people. That he alone is the one true God. Any other gods are false gods. Any other gods are just the the figment of human imagination. Remember, Moses himself had grown up in an an Egyptian culture. God's people had lived for 400 years in, in close proximity to the Egyptian people. And certainly the Egyptians were well known for their myriad of gods. The Pharaoh himself was considered a God. And here is God in revealing this name, I am who I am. He is saying, I alone am the self-existent God. Secondly, God is revealing the fact that he is unchanging. 
When God says, I am who I am, God is telling Moses, I am the same as I was all the way back from the beginning. I am the same God now. I am who I am. I think we could think of this in the same way that you and I might use the phrase in describing ourselves or something we do when we say, that's just who I am. And the implication is, don't expect me to change it. Don't expect me to be something different. This is who I am. Or maybe we use the phrase, it is what it is. You heard that phrase? It is what it is. Again, the implication is, is isn't going to change. It, it is what it is. There's no changing it. And here God is saying, I am who I am. I do not change. When applied to God, this demonstrates God's absolute faithfulness. When God says he will do something, it's a guarantee that it will be done. Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. James writes about this unchangeability of God. James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God does not change. You may have heard the, the saying, the only constant in life is change. And I think that all too often is very true in our experience. We change. People around us change. People's feelings toward us change. Our experiences change. But we have a God who is unchanging. And when we look to Him, He provides the stability that we need in, in our ever-changing life around us. He is an unchanging God. He is a rock as he has described in Scripture. He is that to which we tie ourselves to, to be stable. When the winds blow around us, when the seas, when the waves crash in our lives, we have a sure foundation, which is our God. He is unchanging. So God is self-existent. God is unchanging. The third thing I think that he is communicating with his statement that I am who I am, is that he is absolutely independent and so totally sovereign over all things. This is a product of his self-existence. The fact that everything else happened because God existed and made it happen. God does not answer to anyone. God acts independently of anyone. God is not accountable to anyone. God is only accountable, as it were, to himself. By stating, I am who I am, God is defining himself on his terms rather than on anyone else's. I think we often, we might think or say, or we, we, we've heard people say that, I like to think of God being this way. I don't like to think of God that way. I like to think of God as a loving God. I don't like to think of God as, 
as a vengeful God who judges sin. I don't like to think that God would cause difficulty to enter my life. I like to think of God as giving me everything that I want. The problem is you and I are not able to define who God is. It is not, the privilege is not given to us to define who God is. You see, God is who He is, whether we like it or not. God is not bound to act the way we expect or desire. He is free to act as He sees fit. This explains why He caused His people to be in bondage to Egypt for 400 years before rescuing them. God acts and does as He pleases. Paul in Romans records a statement that God will say to Moses later in the book of Exodus. Paul quotes it in Romans 9 verse 15. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God's point in, in, in saying, I am who I am, shows that he is independent of anyone else. He is sovereign. He rules all peoples. And Paul's message in Romans 9 is God acts as he wills. He shows mercy on whom he will show mercy. He hardens whom he wills. We'll see in just a little bit in in Exodus that story of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. I think it's important for us to, to realize and understand that we... We actually need God to be exactly who He said He would be. Even if that at first does not seem palatable to us. We need for God to be exactly who He said He'd be. You see, if God was anything less than who He is, then we have no hope in Him. Then God is, God is not worthy of, of putting our hope and trust in. We need God to be exactly who He is. And rather than seeking to define God and and put God in our box according to our preferences and and things we like to believe, we must go to His Word. We we must find out who He is. We We must learn from His own revelation who He is and what He is like. And let our picture of God be determined by what we see in Scripture rather than what our experience is and, and what we would like Him to be. The point God was communicating to Moses here is that He, that this is His name, it's always been His name, and it will continue to be His name forever. That's what He says at the end of verse 15. This is My name forever. So what is his name? What's the name that he's referring to? It's really all of this. God God is revealing all of this about himself. He says, I am who I am. He tells Moses to tell his people, I am has sent you. 
And then in verse 15, he says, the Lord or Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is who God is. This is who he always has been. We see this from the book of Genesis. You may remember when we study through Genesis all the way back in Genesis chapter four. Verse 26 says to Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh. Or Genesis 15, verses 6 and 7, referring to Abraham, it says, And he believed the Lord, he believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And then in Genesis 22, after God had told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, and after God had provided a substitute, the ram, Abraham, in thanksgiving to God, called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Yahweh will provide. So these verses show that God is not revealing a new name about himself. He is simply revealing who he has always been for his people. He has always been self-existent. He has always been unchanging and faithful. He has always been independent and sovereign over all peoples. And that's the message he is to grasp for himself, to understand who God is, and then to take that message to his people. That the sovereign Lord the sovereign Yahweh, the creator of all things, the, the, the ruler of all peoples, who has called out his own people, his special people for his, his own possession, now comes to you in faithfulness to his covenant to rescue you. This is the message God gives to Moses as he reveals himself to him. And we see that as God reveals himself, he now sends Moses, point number two. God reveals his name to Moses. Now God sends Moses with the hope of his covenant faithfulness. God sends Moses to his people with the hope of his covenant faithfulness. Look again at verse 16. God says to him, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. As we just saw, one of the aspects of God seen in the revelation of his name is his faithfulness. God is unchanging. God has made a promise to his people. God made a promise all the way back there in, in Genesis to Abraham that he would grow his descendants to be a nation. Even telling the patriarchs that their descendants would be in bondage to Egypt for 400 years, but then that he would rescue them, bringing them into the land that he promised. And God is telling Moses, he's reminding Moses here that he is unchanging and faithful to his covenant. 
We see this in his reference to being the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. God is, God is calling his attention back to the promise he had made to the patriarchs. And now here this nation has grown. They've multiplied. We saw the blessing of God in multiplying them in Exodus 1. And now Moses is called to go to the elders of Israel. It's the first time we see this sort of phrase used in the scripture. So this family, what began as God's relationship with an individual family, has grown into a relationship with an entire nation. And Moses is called to go to the elders of Israel and to give them this message of hope that God will be faithful to his covenant. And what is his message to the elders of Israel? It's simply that God has observed what has happened to them. God has seen them. He has, he has observed them. We saw similar phrases used earlier in chapter 3 that God saw, God knew, God has observed. And there is more to this than simply God seeing physically, but it, the implication is actually a, an idiom in the language that means that God is being moved to a response. God observed them to the point that he is moved to respond on their behalf. So what we saw was implicit back in Exodus 1 where God was multiplying the people in spite of the oppression that they were under. God multiplied them even though the, the king of Egypt was attempting to murder their babies. What was implicit there is now explicit. God is telling Moses directly to tell the people, I have seen what has happened to you. I understand what you've gone through, and I am coming to rescue you. This was the message of hope. God would be faithful to his covenant. You know, I wonder what the children of Israel, these 400 years, had thought. I kind of raised this question earlier in the book of Exodus. What, what were they thinking? Would they remain faithful to God's promise? Had they begin to doubt his promise? Generations had come and gone, and, and yet they remained in, in slavery to Egypt. You know, it seems that from God's promised response and what we'll see, the, the actual response takes place in, in, in chapter 4. The people believed. It seems as though they, they were still looking. They were still expecting to be delivered. They readily believed. God promised Moses that they would believe. He could go confidently with this message because they would, in fact, believe that God would be faithful. God is an unchanging God. In His very nature, His very nature, rather, demanded that He remain faithful to His covenant. This was the promise to His people. We also know that God has extended his covenant faithfulness not simply to an ethnic group of people, the Jewish people that, that he called in the Old Testament, but he has extended his covenant faithfulness to those who are in Christ. And I think it's appropriate for us to consider for a second the fact that when Jesus came, he identified himself with Yahweh, with the I Am. 
Think of all the times Jesus referred to himself this way. He described himself, I am. I am the way. That phrase, I am, had special significance. One one place, one example of this was in John 8. As he is talking to the religious leaders. And they ask him, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? They're challenging Jesus' identity. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I know him and keep his word. And then Jesus speaks of Abraham. Rejoice that he would see my day, would see Jesus' day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And their response indicates what they thought of that statement. They picked up stones to throw at him. They understood what Jesus was telling them. It wasn't just bad grammar. Jesus was saying that I am the I am of the Old Testament. I am Yahweh. I am God. And so we who are in Christ have this same hope of God's faithfulness to His covenant. His covenant to rescue His people from bondage. You see, we need this same reminder of God's covenant faithfulness in our lives. Our identification with Christ provides hope in the promises of God. Let me just recount a few of many promises that God has made. 1 John 1.9 tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think it's easy for us to think that our sinfulness whether past sinfulness or ongoing sinfulness, is a hindrance to, God, to our usefulness to accomplish God's calling for us. But God reminds us that in Christ there is forgiveness for sin. That if we confess our sin, God will be faithful. God is unchanging. He will be faithful to forgive that sin through Christ. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we are not hindered in the least from serving Him. Because God is self-existent and unchanging, He is able to forgive our sins in Christ when we confess. And He is able to use us, having cleansed our hearts from sin. Hebrews 4, 5. God promises that I will never leave you nor forsake you. In fact, this is a promise that Moses himself would later demand from God when God said that he was going to leave his people. He told Moses to to lead them alone. And and Moses demanded, saying, if you don't go with me, I will not lead this people. Moses understood 
He needed the presence of God with him to accomplish the task to which God had called him. And you and I need the very same thing. The task to which God has called us as his people requires the power of God behind it. And the promise that we have from Scripture is that when we are in Christ, we have eternally the presence of God with us. In fact, we have the indwelling presence of God by His Spirit, strengthening and enabling our, our fulfillment of His calling. God will never leave us nor forsake us. Romans 8.32 Paul writes in that great chapter, As it comes to its conclusion, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? This is not a promise that God will give us every whim of our heart, everything that we desire, but it is a promise that God will give us everything we need in our journey towards sanctification. God God through the Apostle Paul in in Romans 8 describes that, that process those God called, He justified. Those He justified, he, glor- he, he sanctified, He glorified. We have the assurance that God it, will accomplish this. God did not spare His own Son. God gave His own Son up for us. He's not going to leave us with anything short of all that we need to be sanctified and to be useful for Him. Finally, Second Corinthians 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I think one of the heartening promises of God, when we feel insufficient for the work that He's called us to, when we feel our own weakness, our own inability, we understand that God delights to use weak vessels. We'll see in in chapter 4, God make this clear to Moses. God made it clear to Paul who writes this in 2 Corinthians. God delights to use weak vessels because then when we accomplish the calling to which He's called us, it's His power that's displayed. It's not of us. It's God's power that is displayed in our weakness. His grace is sufficient for us. His power is is sufficient to overcome our weakness. This is the message Moses was, was to go, go with to his people. God is faithful to his covenant. And then God sends Moses with the hope of his sovereign rule. So God reveals his name to Moses. God sends Moses with the hope of his covenant faithfulness and then God sends Moses with the hope of his sovereign rule. Look again at what God will do when encountered by the king of Egypt. Verse 19, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that he will let you go. We saw earlier that in God's revelation of his name is this independence. God is independent of everyone and everything. God is absolutely sovereign over all peoples, over all kings and kingdoms. 
No enemy is too powerful. You see, Yahweh is not just a local deity. As the Egyptians had many localized deities. Yahweh is no local deity. He is the God of the universe who rules over all. All kings and kingdoms are under his control. The king of Egypt was viewed as a god and the people of Egypt worshipped many gods. But all of that was meaningless when when the God of heaven decided to stretch out his hand against the king of Egypt. All the perceived power of that king and all the perceived power of their gods was as nothing when Yahweh decided to stretch out his hand against them. And God's promise to Moses is that when I stretch out my hand against Pharaoh, he will let you go. In other words, don't worry about that powerful king. He doesn't stand a chance against the God of heaven. By stretching out his hand against Pharaoh, God shows that all people, all lands, and all wealth belong to him to do with as he pleases. And all kings and kingdoms are subservient to God and his purpose and will will be used to accomplish the purposes of God. I think it's interesting that God promises that not only will the king of Egypt let them go, but that God will give them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And they will not go away empty. They will plunder the Egyptians. They will be enriched with the silver and gold and clothing of the Egyptians. In one sense, we could view this as God paying his people for the years of servitude that they had worked in Egypt where they got no pay. All they got was mistreatment and oppression. And this was God's way of, of blessing them for all of those years of, of servitude. The Egyptians had spent years enriching themselves at the hand of the Israelites. And here God is proving that all, all of those riches were his. And he was able to transfer them to one group of people to another. It all belongs to God. I think what is also striking is the theme that we've, we've seen already repeatedly in the book of Exodus. Who, it, who is it that are the plunderers, humanly speaking, in this verse? It's the women. We've seen women play a key role to this point in Exodus. It's the women who are the ones doing the plundering. This is a reverse of what's expected, right? Normally it's not the women who plunder an enemy. But this is the way God chooses to do things. God delights, as we saw earlier, to do things in a way no one expects. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Just as God delights to use weak vessels to display His power, He consistently reverses the natural order of things 
in order that he alone would, re- would receive glory for what happens. Here is the, the human sovereign over all the earth, Pharaoh, the one lifted up as a god. And here his great kingdom was plundered by not just the enemy, but the women of the enemy, those that were, those that were thought of as the lowest in that time. And that's the way God delights to work. So that it's His name that receives glory. He is the one who is praised. And so like Moses, we are called to a task. We are called to this calling that requires the presence and power of God. If we are to accomplish this calling, we need God working through us. We need God dwelling within us. We need to be reminded of what Moses was reminded of. That it's the same Yahweh. It's the same God who demonstrated His covenant faithfulness to His people by rescuing them. It's that same Yahweh that demonstrates His faithfulness to us in Christ. That rules over everything. That directs our lives. It's the same Yahweh that that empowers us to obey His calling. And so we go with the same confidence Moses was able to go with. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in the One who has called us, the One who has enabled us, the One who gifts us. We saw last week that all of us, by virtue of our calling to salvation, have a calling by God to, to make His name known, to serve His people. And no matter what our perception is of ourselves, if we view ourselves as weak, well, as we've learned, how much, how much greater the, the glory to God when, when He works through us and enables us. And so we rejoice with the hope that, that God has not only called us, but He has enabled us to obey that call. And even as we have opportunity to, to come to the Lord's table today, it's, it's an opportunity for us to be reminded of of God's faithfulness to His covenant. Those of us who are in Christ receive the blessings, receive these promises that we rehearsed that God will will be for His people. And so we come to the Lord's table as an opportunity to remember the work that Christ did on our behalf. That which the, the Exodus pictured has happened in our hearts. God has delivered us from the bondage of our sin. And so we come to the table to remember that work. We come to the table to rejoice in the hope that that work provides for us. To obey His call. And maybe as we, as we come, and this table is, is open for all who are, who are trusting Christ for salvation. It's not limited to just members of our church, but it is for for all those who are trusting in Christ for salvation, looking to Him as the rescuer of our sins. And maybe as we come, we we remember these promises of God, the the promise of forgiveness of sin, the promise of His, His presence with us, the promise of His gifts of sanctification through the Son. 
and the promise of His grace and power being perfected in our weakness. So we will, I'll pray and the servers can come and we'll have a moment of, of silent meditation. And when the music starts, when the team leads us in singing, you come and celebrate with us the Lord's table by which we remember His work on the cross for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the message of hope that we have as we understand more of who You are. You are the I Am. You are the self-existent One. The unchanging God. And You have called us to a task that You enable us to accomplish. We rejoice in Your faithfulness to us. We rejoice that You forgive our sins and You strengthen us. Thankful that You give us everything that we need to be sanctified, to be made into the image of Christ. And I pray now as we come to the Lord's table, we are reminded of the work that Christ did on the cross in our place. And by being the sacrifice for our sins, by, by offering that sacrifice, He has guaranteed blessing for us. That is our hope. And I pray that this would be a time of rejoicing, of, of contemplation and meditation on that reality, that you would strengthen our faith through it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.